Hello and welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders. Joining the show today is Paul Begg, John Reese, and Steve Blomer, and we're all here to welcome back to the show John Malcolm for a discussion <laughs> devoted to his book, The Whitechapel Murders of 1888, Another Dead End. John's book is, in my opinion, the best book to come out of Ripperology in the last few years, and what he calls his speculative commentary on Sir Robert Anderson and the Polish Jew suspect should be read by everyone with more than a passing interest in the case of the Whitechapel murders. So let's welcome John Malcolm back to the show. Hello, John. Hello. Thanks for thanks for uh, giving me this opportunity again. Definitely appreciate it. Now, before we get started, since our topic will be Robert Anderson's suspect and Aaron Kosminski, I do want to note the passing last April of our friend Martin Fido, who had been a guest on the show numerous times and a friend to many in the field of ripperology and whose research for his book, The Crimes, Detection, and Death of Jack the Ripper, led to his discovery of Aaron Kosminski in the records of the Colony Hatch Lunatic Asylum. John Malcolm, will you talk a little bit about Martin and his impact on you and on the subject that we'll be discussing? Well, he's had a, his book had a huge influence on me and it still does today. It was uh, one of the, one of the few or the handful that I'd read in pretty much rapid succession when I first started being interested in this. And, um, it was the first one that made me kind of, that emphasized the Jewish community and it, it, it took things to a, to a completely different kind of perspective and, um, Although it's, it seemed kind of, kind of disappointing that that ending some still seems like a, a strangely disappointing ending to the story, um, but it's it's had a lasting impact on me and the way I've looked at it. And I mean, you can you can trace that to everything I I believe today. Um, certainly, um, a lot of it, most of it, what what um, you know what I believe today, you can trace back to that that single book. When you say disappointing, is it the Nathan Kaminsky? Is that what you're referring to? Which Martin is more before his death, um, in the last few years prior to his death, kind of disavowed that he he, he even called it like a a bridge too far. Oh, I I don't I don't know. I didn't mean that as a disappointment. As in, it was more of a disappointment because you're. You do, not knowing mu not much about the subject, you hear about Jack the Ripper. You think it's some there's some kind of drama and some kind of um, a, a suspect like someone he would put forth, whether it be Nathan Kaminsky or David Cohen or Aaron Kaminsky, just doesn't seem to fit. And that's why I say it's strangely disappointing because it just it seems to be anticlimactic, is what I'm saying. Is not his not his conclusions. There's nothing disappointing about. His conclusions. It was just compared to, you know, some kind of um, royal or Masonic cons conspiracy, or some deranged doctor or practicing occultist or something like that. It just seemed kind of mundane. So, yeah, strangely disappointing is the only way I can describe that. And Paul, since we have you on the show, well, my comments are, are very much the same as John's. I, I. Obviously, I, I uh, read Martin's book when it was published. Uh, we met very soon afterwards, along with uh, Keith Skinner. And 
whilst I didn't uh, didn't agree with uh, with Martin's uh, final theories, and he, on the other hand, described my book as dry as dust. Uh, we, we, despite we overcame those uh, those problems and uh, became friends for the next twenty five years and collaborated on on books and uh, and other projects together. So I think Martin made uh, a tremendous impact on the subject. And again, I mean, back in nineteen eighty seven, um, he was the first person really to bring. Uh, a clear eye to the analysis of the principal figures in the story. So, believe it or not, he was the first person to make the connection, which now seems so blindingly obvious, uh, between uh, between Anderson's unnamed Polish Jew and the Polish Jew called Kosminski in the McNaughton Memoranda. Uh, up until that time, it had been assumed that Anderson was referring to uh, to, to the leather apron character, to, to John Pizer. And so Martin's impact there was quite considerable. I think it was, a, in some respects, uh, referring back to what you were just saying about what the disappointment uh, in the sense that Martin avoided Kosminski and, and went for the, the Nathan Kaminsky route and the David Cohen theory, I think... That was disappointing, um, but in a way, Martin had gone back, had actually finished his book, had submitted the manuscript, uh, and had ended by saying, so Anderson is probably the most reliable source that we have, and if anybody wants to know who Jack the Ripper was, all they should do is go through the asylum records and, and look for Kosminski. And, of course, his publisher said, well, why don't you do that? So Martin was then given very little time, and since they didn't want to expand the book, very little space in which to make that uh, pursuit, and he found Kuzminski, but looked at him, and so convinced was he that Anderson was right that he didn't think Kuzminski fitted the bill and therefore looked for somebody else. Um, that, I think, was, was a, a little disappointing in a way because... It means that uh, Cohen has been considered and, and either accepted or rejected, and unfortunately probably mostly rejected. And people have, whilst accepting Martin for the contributions that he's made to the subject, have tended to overlook the great strengths of, uh, of the crimes detection and death of Jack the Ripper in his analysis of the, of the principal characters. So I, Martin... Was was lucky and unlucky in the both at the same time, but he he's really sadly missed, and the way that uh, that he left us is terribly sad, much missed. Yes, very much so. Thank you, Paul and John, for your for your comments. I'd like to start off by describing to our listeners a little bit about who Sir Robert Anderson was. We know that he was the assistant police commissioner and head of the CID throughout the Ottoman Terror, but there's a perception that his experience with actual policing was minimal at best. And it's this perception that your book, John Malcolm, aims to destroy. He's a pretty complex character, and his experience is pretty, pretty varied by the time he got to be um, in the position of the assistant commissioner. And started out as a uh, working in a brewery 
um, which didn't last very long. But his experiences in the, the court system, um, becoming a solicitor, first called to the Irish bar and then later to the English bar, um, and having solicitors in his family, his brother Samuel and his father was crowned solicitor of Dublin at one point too. So long story short, he had a pretty decent background as far as getting into criminology or getting into policing and that with his experiences. And now they may not have been directly relevant to the crimes that he was investigating in, in later years, but they certainly gave him a, a, a perspective on things. And he, he subsequently worked for the um, prison commissions. So he had experience in that capacity. And then, of course, as an advisor to the Home Office about political crime, I mean, he was certainly well trusted by the government, not only because of the sensitive information he had to deal with, but his background, not only in Ireland and in England and with the two governments. And it really set the stage for him to be in a very good position, I believe, to become the assistant police commissioner. And I think that that kind of that kind of sums up the thing without going into all the boring details of his education and all that. But but I do think he had and I think it was his words that he said he had some entered its position with some significant advantages that a lot of maybe policemen who had progressed from from constable to commissioner, as Henry Smith would put it, if anyone actually had taken that entire route. But he did have some significant advantages going into that position. I think a lot of times that's kind of overlooked. And he also spent 13 years in that capacity as assistant commissioner as well. So he obviously had to have been in the good graces with the powers that be for a considerable amount of time. If you take all of those pieces and put them together, it really does kind of bookend a career that was varied and also, you know, it was, it was collectively unique to, to any of the people that we, you know, that come down today from Charles Warren on down to Walter Dew or the policeman on the beat. It, it, Anderson definitely, in my opinion, was in a real, very good position from the beginning. And uh, so I, I think he deserves credit for that, not just being some kind of political appointment, which I think a lot of times people kind of look at him as some sort of privileged kind of plug in by association of people that he knew in high places, which I think it's, it's certainly more, more than that, than just that. And the man's character is kind of called into question by some people in ripperology and your book goes into great detail about his religious writings. You also quote several, several tributes by others as well as quotes taken out of those religious writings of his to kind of give the reader a sense of his character. How would you describe his character? Complicated, complex. You know, he, his, his uh, religious writings and that side of him dominated his life from an early age right on through. And, you know, all you have to do is look at the number of of books, 26, 27, 28, I'm not even exactly sure, that he wrote about his religious beliefs and not only those different titles, but there were multiple revisions of multiple number of these books. And so it really played um, at least 
as big a part as his professional career, probably more so than that. And it's it's tough trying to come up with a, a character judgment, even if you have all this information before you, uh, because he clearly had some very, very strong beliefs when, when it comes to when it came to religion, when it came to the Irish question and things like that. So you can kind of see where the um, appearance of bias or closed mindedness can kind of attach to him because of these very strong opinions he had on certain issues. But it is it is it's definitely not um, the best way to go about trying to judge him. Uh, if you if you look at uh, um, just the depth that he goes into some of these religious arguments, which really are torturous to to go through if you're not into that kind of thing. It's not my kind of thing, but it's almost a necessary evil to explore these things in order to get a better idea of the man. And he, he was a very, very high moral standards. I mean, I don't think when you look at all of these things that you can question that. And that doesn't mean he wasn't capable of um, terminological inexactitudes, which is a word that he used to describe himself, basically. He, put, he, he said that uh, he was certainly capable of that. And his background as a, as a lawyer, again, put him in a position where he could be very, very careful with the way he worded things. And so in, in essence, you can be sort of a professional liar by manipulating language, which, you know, he was, he was very adept at that. So that can also kind of reflect negatively and say, well, you know, he was capable of deceiving. So you have to keep that in mind, which obviously you do have to keep it in mind. But if it's in the proper context and you look at the examples of where he may have used terminological inexactitudes and they all seem to have to pass that threshold of his morality and it seems that in most of those instances when in every instance that i can see it had to do with a, a means to an end when it comes to criminals and when it comes to issues of of, of that kind of thing you know i i don't think that he was a um, reckless liar, which and another simple way to look at him, and a lot of people do that too, because it's it's so easy to brand somebody with these terms, and then it kind of like puts this this wall around everything else, and then his high, you know, in my opinion, high moral character, and like I said, if you disagree with him on religious terms or on political terms, you would have a different opinion of him. But overall, I, I just, I don't think he was capable of, of just fabricating or, or just outright lying about serious matters. Um, I'm not sure if that totally answers your question, but, uh, um, you know, I think, I think he, he was definitely more concerned with taking the moral high route in almost everything he did and said in, in his life. You get the impression that if he's that when he says something, um, he says it with with such assurance that he he's prepared to back that up. 
now in the case of the Whitechapel murders, he might not have quite been allowed to, but you do get this overall sense that he was no nonsense and that if when he when he made a pronouncement or he stated his opinion, he did it forcefully enough that if asked, he's ready to prove himself correct. You know what I'm saying? Well, and he knew exactly how, you know, the parameters of how he could um, argue these things and back these things up. He knew legally inside and out what he could get away with and what he couldn't get away with. And when he says, either I said too much or I said too little when it comes to um, the Whitechapel murders, I mean, I think that sums it up perfectly because um, it's true on both. You know, he said too much and he said too little. But you you have to remember he wasn't when he got into that um well more than one occasion got into um conflict with members of parliament over the Parnell case as well as the Whitechapel murders he was never called to give his side and i think there's a very good reason why he wasn't called because he could have caused a lot more grief in in either of those situations had he um you know i think basically a lot of people were afraid of him because of his positions and the positions that he held and to what he could say and what he knew he could say, what he could get away with, no, you know, saying. So, yeah, he was, I mean, and for example, if you look at a lot of his religious books, he's, he was um, really into the book of Daniel, really into, I'm using pretty simple kind of terms here, but um, he would get into these really deep discussions, arguments, whatever you uh, want to call it with these other religious scholars and writers and clergy and the depth that he explored these kind of things. I mean, he's going back to different translations of the Bible, whether it be Greek or Latin and uh, breaking down particular sentences and the translations of these words and all of these things. So when he doubted himself, he was open to, having these opinions challenged and he went to great lengths not just to prove that he was right but to maybe prove that he wasn't wrong or maybe he you know i mean he didn't seem like he went well out of his way just because he formed an opinion and he just wanted to hammer you over the head with it you know and uh that's the that's the reputation he has you know he formed an opinion and he just he couldn't get over it but if you take all of this and put it in in the proper context and perspective. I think I think you'll find that that's that's not it. Certainly wasn't the case with his with his religious arguments and discussions. And I don't think that um, that would apply to his professional career and his professional uh, his writings about his professional career either. But my opinion, of course, and it's it's certainly not in um, you know it's not a majority opinion. I think it's still has to be a lot more work done to convince the average ripperologist that there's more to this man than addle-headed nonsense, you know, I mean. It is also Martin Fido's opinion, of course, uh, a lot of what you just said. Uh, I think Martin went out of his way to say he didn't think that um, Anderson would lie, which, of course, isn't, uh, isn't strictly what Martin said, um, because he did, did lay down certain provisos uh, about the the lying, but certainly agreed with you as as do I that I don't think Anderson was 
somebody who would make things up. And I don't think either that he was the sort of person. I don't think his morals would have allowed him to blame somebody uh, for for the Ripper murders. Wouldn't have said that a Jew was uh, responsible just because he didn't like Jews, which there, of course, there is no evidence for anyway. But um, but I, I think he he was a I think he was a, a straight man. I think what you saw is what you got. Yeah, well, that's that's. That's certainly what I've found, you know. I mean, it's um, you may not agree with him, you know, when it comes to a, a opinions, but um, yeah, he 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 was not afraid to um, be challenged on any on anything he said, and uh, I think he and, also had an, a uniquely, or, or or at least not necessarily uniquely, but certainly uh, a rare capacity was that he had a sense of history. So when an event came along. He was, um, he, and, I, and to some extent Monroe also, but less, but less so. But he had this this between uh, re- knowing what had to be kept secret. But when that need had passed, uh, I think he was quite prepared to to voice a little bit about the history and. Not necessarily boastfully talking about his part in history, but um, but we talk about the part that he played because that's the bit that he knew about. So he was able to contribute to our historical knowledge by talking about certain things, even though uh, other people might not have wanted that to be discussed. Now, you had mentioned, John, the idea that he was befuddled when he wrote in 1910 I believe is the first appearance of um, the Blackwoods articles, um, the serialization of his memoirs. His did his religious writings, if I'm if I'm understanding correctly, he was writing like other things at the time throughout the the early part of the 1900s and even beyond the 1910. He died in 1918, but wasn't he? writing like pretty lucid heavy you know books like uh, up and up past 1910 and up, up until very closely to his death wasn't he yeah yeah well well beyond 1910 he was still um he was still doing public speaking almost right up to the end of his life too i mean he could he was almost totally deaf but he was still engaging uh, with these subjects, and yeah, they're, they're, especially the, when you're talking about biblical subjects, you're talking about uh, a, a great span of, of of history and time and interpretation. And um, to say that he had um, lost his faculties or were losing his faculties, other than you know <laughs> the fact that he he was deaf, he was he seemed. I mean, I don't, I can't, I can't. Um, critique his religious writings because I don't have any background in that whatsoever. But as far as being lucid, it's, he did not seem to be a man whose mind was deteriorating to that point. I mean, there's one, one of the criticisms or one of the things that's used to criticize Anderson is, is that um, discussion that he had when he mixed up um, a couple of cases when he was talking with someone and he admitted that he was kind of tired, too tired to recall the, the 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 details. And those are the kind of things that are that are propped up to show, or to at least 
try to make people think that he ha- was losing it. But that is taken out of context again because of the fact, yes, he was writing. I'm not sh- – I don't know the date of the last book that he published because there's a, a good handful of his books that are still – uh, still in print today. I mean, that that is a remarkable fact in itself that that some of the things he said on that religious side, which like I said, I really don't have any interest in, but the fact that, that a lot of that stuff still resonates and is still worthy of discussion to this day, I, I haven't come across anybody who says, yeah, well, he, he started to lose his marbles, you know, towards his last few, his last few books because after 1914, I'm not sure what his output technically was because it's pretty hard to trace a lot of these publishing companies have gone out of business and the actual first edition of a lot of these it's really hard to put these dates on but it certainly appears that if you look at the um you know the biography that was written by his son which i mean of course is going to be sentimental anytime you're writing a a biography in that kind of sense it's going to be sentimental so you have to take that in consideration as well but there really did not seem to be indicate any indication that that um, yeah he he had he had just given up learning and and given up thinking um, beyond you know what he'd had all his life. I mean, it just doesn't seem to me any kind of any kind of indication that uh, it would have in in nineteen ten you know it would have manifested itself in just his pr- writings about his professional life. It just that just doesn't. Doesn't square up with me. Mm-hmm. And his, um, as when you were saying that he um, admitted that um, he had gotten some facts wrong because he was tired, that just goes to show that he was a man who would, who wasn't beyond self criticism. You know, if 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 he wasn't if he wasn't sure of the facts or if he had gotten something wrong, he he would be honest about it, right? Um, whereas if in the Whitechapel murder you know, case, I mean, it seemed to, when he was criticized for his comments, um, in, in that instance, um, he didn't apologize or say he was mistaken, or maybe he was, um, unsure of the facts. He just like doubled down on what, um, he had said. So. Right. Which, and if you, if you look at, there are, you know, more than one example of him, admitting when he was wrong in, in his writings, you know, he, he used the phrase, I was, I think it was, I was, but a, um, poor ignoramus (laughs) or something at one point in describing a learning experience that taught him he was wrong about something, you know? So, I mean, his humility, his, the, the, um, examples of his humility are, are really just kind of like completely drowned out by the, the, the few examples of his, terminological inexactitudes or his bending of the truth truth you look at his um uh, the way he describes leaving his position as assistant commissioner and if you look at how he words it it looks like it was entirely his decision or if you look at the backstory it appears pretty obvious that there were people who wanted him out of that position and asked him to leave his position. But again, you, both of these things can be true depending on the wording. And like I said, that's the one thing that you really need to keep in the, in mind that I think a lot of people think that, he, that Anderson was haphazard in the way he worded things in his autobiography or, um, in articles or in, in speaking. And I think it's the exact opposite that, that you really have to 
look carefully and exactly what he said and the words he used. And that's why I think paraphrasing Anderson, you run into the danger of kind of losing the truth a little bit in there. It's not one of the issues that I view Anderson as being an intellectual and basically we distrust intellectuals. It's not an issue, really. <laughs> well, that's especially these days. It um, you know, there's been some discussion of that, which obviously is an, <laughs> an entirely different can of worms there. But I think, well, I'm talking purely about this. I mean, I think yeah. a lot of modern day writers actually distrust Anderson because he is intellectual. Yeah, I, I suppose that that and, uh, that can have an effect. Um, elite. You hear the word elite a lot. I think when people describe mm. Anderson, I think that a lot of people use that that status that he was. You know, he was born into privilege, and he enjoyed that right through the end of his life. And I think that um, that can be relevant as well too. You know, I mean, if you think that um, there's a disconnect, whether it be academically or in intellectually or mm. um class wise that can influence his perspective which i'm sure it does i'm sure whatever whatever status in life you have whether it be education or whether it be you know the, the class wise it's going to have an impact on how you view the other side so um no matter which way you look at it you kind of have to put those kind of things recognize when those things are influencing your opinions mm. and at least for the time being put those aside and give the benefit of the doubt um to the people that have had the experience regardless of you know the perspective they had uh, you know on those experiences so. um this is i don't before this turns into a complete anderson love fest one one of the <laughs> other uh, one thing uh, one more one more bit of love that I'll just point out and then we'll move along is that um, you had, you had talked about, you know, his humbleness critics of Robert Anderson kind of want to be able to play both sides to where they'll, they'll say that he um, published his reminiscences and made these pronouncements about the Polish Jew and all this as, as just like a way to stroke his own ego. And I believe he was contemporaneously criticized for that. But then when you read his writings, he's always the one to say that all the credit should go to the, the, the police, his subordinate police officers who worked the streets, you know, those under, under him, you know, he, he, he's like generous to a fault in saying that the people, that the men who worked under him should be the ones, um, to get any credit, uh, if any is deserving in this case, <clears throat> and then the critics of Anderson will take that and say, well, that just showed, that just points to his inexperience and that he relied on all of his subordinates to, because he, you know, was just flailing around and not knowing what he was doing. You see what I'm saying? So, so they try to have it both ways. They, they, they say he's an egotist on the one hand, but then they, but then when he sh shows himself to be, to be humble, they, they judge that as, as a point towards his inexperience. Yeah. I, I don't think I would use the word humble when it comes to Anderson. He, he was, he was arrogant <laughs> and he certainly did think a lot of himself. So I can see that 
side as well. I mean, he, he wasn't my kind. He, he wasn't someone who I could ever picture sitting down in a pub and having a pint with. You know, I, I would, I, I am intimidated by his intelligence or his, his, his arrogance. He, he wasn't, there's no question. I was, was, I was referring I, to his, um, his unwillingness to like, um, take full credit. You well, know, he, he, for, yeah, he, ne- he never took full credit for, for any of this. He never right. said, I did this. I did this. Every time he said something about the Whitechapel murders, it was we, we the conclusion we came to, you right. know, it, it was like he never, he never took personal responsibility for any of this. And he always stressed that he did rely on um, the information gathered at, at street level, but also he was re- relied upon to collate all of this information and direct investigations. And so, I mean, he, he was trusted to take all of this information and decide what to do with it, you know? So it, it, there was a mutual trust, I think. And I, and I haven't seen many examples of, of where his subordinates or uh, rivals, which I think, you know, when it comes to that, when it comes to, you know, police rivalry, I think that's all kind of overblown and most of it's made up. You see little digs, um, Henry Smith, you know, devoting a chapter in his book, a very sarcastic um, chapter about, uh, you know, towards Anderson. McNaughton in his memoirs, not even mentioning Anderson in the entire time. You can read into that as well. But no, he, 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 he never claims anywhere, and that's a that's something that's used against him. Oh, I I did this, I did this. He did this to boost his ego or to sell his books, which in both cases is ridiculous because he really, you know, he, he was known for giving away a lot of his works, um, and he certainly didn't need money from these things. It wasn't something that uh, he needed, and 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 I don't think that he needed to stroke his own ego. I think it was pretty healthy for pretty much the majority of his adult li- adult life. I, th- I think the, the, the true test of his humbleness and his use of you know the collective responsibility we did this is if in the public eye the investigation had been a complete success. If Jack the Ripper had wound up in court and been convicted, would he still have been like that is the question? Or would he have been, I caught the killer myself? I don't see that he would really have to say anything if if it came to that point. You know, I think he... I think it was, it was, I mean, this is, this is my opinion as well. So it's all my opinion. But, um, when he said the things he said about the criminal being known to the police, I think it was less for him and more for the department that generally gets, um, slagged the entire time for being inept. You know, I mean, the, the, you look at the cartoons and was it like punch magazine or these newspapers that basically mock the police in their investigations. And I don't think, I think he was, he basically wanted to set the record straight that the police were not incompetent. And although it doesn't appear that it was, you know, to me that it was, it was the police work that necessarily discovered the murderer, if that is in fact the case, but it was the police work that put the focus on the right places. And I think that he really, it was more defending the for the Metropolitan Police as a whole than it was trying to boost his own image. I mean, he had, 
he had enough enemies, both in, in government and elsewhere. I don't think he was concerned very much about his critics and about, you know, boosting himself up. But I do think he was concerned with kind of saving the reputation of the Metropolitan Police through this, through these, these times. And I think he went out on a limb. And of course, he had to have known that he was going to be in for this criticism when he said the things that he said. Um, but I think that there's a good possibility that there's a lot of in the force that didn't say anything, you didn't hear anything from that were going, yeah, you know, I'm glad that somebody kind of finally stood up for us. And now we don't have to say anything. And because obviously the, the criticisms that he um, took for saying too much or too little, uh, you know, had some pretty serious repercussions. But I, I think it, uh, it, it accomplished what he set out to do. And is that's kind of reestablish the credibility of the, of the police as a whole. It's also interesting just to, to jump in there is to pick up on just something you're saying is that Anderson doesn't actually say how the police caught Jack the Ripper. He, he, um, what, what he tells us is that when he wasn't there, when he was abroad, uh, the police made a house to house search and investigated the case of every man who um, lived alone. And he says then, and the conclusion we came to was that he and his people were low-class Jews. Now, I don't know whether that we came to is supposed to involve him in that decision as a personal person or whether he is referring to the police, the, the people who had organized that house-to-house search in the first place. Um, and then he just says that uh, that um, the result proved that their diagnosis was right on every point. Again, it, it's not him he's talking about our. It, so is he talking about the police or is he talking about him? Is he involving himself in into all of this? It's it's kind of uh, difficult. He's he's he leaves a lot open when he's writing to uh, where where he's imprecise. But the main thing that comes out of all of this is that he's not saying we caught Jack the Ripper doing this, that, and the other. He's just saying that when Jack the Ripper was caught, it turned out that he met the same criteria as they had concluded that uh, that that would be necessary for the real Ripper when they did the house to house search. Yeah, I, I, I see it the, the same way. And, and I think you can kind of also look at it as, you know, the possible scenario that it wasn't the police who discovered who this murderer was. It was that information came to them um, by way of uh, maybe the family or whatever. So it may they may not have actually been responsible for unearthing this murderer, which I kind of believe that that's the case. But yeah. when these facts came to light, it showed that they were on the right path and in the right direction. So there really isn't any kind of, he doesn't go as far as saying um, it would, the police were responsible for unearthing the murderer. He's saying that they were on the right track when the murderer was discovered, you know? So in my opinion, it probably was, was kind of a fluky situation where someone brought information to them as opposed to them finding this on their own. And then they put two and two together and said, yeah, yeah, I think, uh, 
you know, we were, we'll have to give ourselves credit for being on the right track, but it's still stopping short of saying that it was in fact, um, the result of direct police work that brought whoever this person that they are suspecting to light. You know, I, I think you can, you can read between the lines there and, um, you know, it kind of makes sense on on a couple of different levels. There is the the element there that at some point between them having this house to house search and coming to the conclusion that they did, um, and then there, there is a, a point where the police did be, become involved because he says that um, that when the person they suspected. Uh, and they, they were, was caged in an asylum, is that he was then identified, uh, which is what he says in the uh, Blackwoods article. But um, And then, of course, you've got the Swanson bit where we're now being informed that they took the suspect off for identification with great difficulty and so forth, which would suggest that the police did actually become involved in uh, taking the suspect off for identification, but how they came upon that person, as you say, is quite likely to have had no direct involvement in police work, to have been involved in it whatsoever. Yeah, I think it was it was a, it was it was a lucky break they caught, and um, yeah, that's 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 how I see it these days. And it would mo- as yeah. as the most likely scenario may have uh, been been seeking just a little uh, respect for his for his people because they did uh, have this house to house search which he wasn't involved in uh, and which led to a conclusion that they may not have been involved in uh, which as you say turned to be uh, turned out to be on the right track yeah and and the conclusion you know that you know, people will bring that up as being kind of a prejudiced conclusion that they would have um, assumed that the murderer came from the immigrant community. When, in fact, if you actually look at it at, in a, on a common sense level, there's a lot of reasons why you would look at when you take all factors into consideration. The fact that there was no um, local criminals who are willing to um, grasp somebody for being involved or anything like that there's there's a lot of common sense that goes into looking at why this whoever was committing these murders could could get away with it with in in such an area and um i mean it's pretty clear that this community was a pretty it was suspicious of authority to begin with i mean you look at any inner city today and although obviously there's different factors involved there, but if you look any kind of um, like inner city communities, there's there's a almost an, an organic mistrust of authority, and so it would be logical to conclude that well, if we can't come up with anything, then you know we we have to look into the most impenetrable places when it comes to getting information uh, language obviously played a, a big part um, uh, a, a very tight-knit and suspicious community um, played a big part and it was it would be a logical conclusion that <laughs> this would be a, a place that would be more likely to be harboring a murderer than the lodging houses for instance and um, places where 
there wasn't really a tight knit. You couldn't say there was a tight knit East End community, other than you know maybe little pockets of streets or something. You know what I mean? So I mean it it it, it all it, it all kind of makes sense and not on a prejudice or bias level because that would be that would that would be silly to to think that and concentrate on this area if you didn't actually believe and not because of some prejudice or some some bias um, because you're trying to you're trying to make these murders stop and you're trying to to bring this murder or murderers to justice and it just doesn't make any sense that you would you would just uh pick on an immigrant community because it would def- it would defeat the whole purpose of of the investigation you know it just it makes sense on too many levels i'm not altogether sure anyway i think it's just just bad phraseology uh because he clearly his literary output was such that he obviously wrote at considerable speed. Uh, but he says that the, the conclusion that they came to was that he, Jack the Ripper, and his people were low-class Jews. That immediately gets misinterpreted, particularly by Smith, uh, as meaning the whole Jewish community, um, where his people, what he's talking about, is, is more than likely his immediate family. Uh, mm-hmm. Because... Uh, in his experience, and despite the fact that it may have been questioned by others, uh, the low-class Jews didn't give up one of their own to, to Gentile justice, which uh, they may well indeed have been very reluctant to, to, to give up one of their own, fearing that uh, the, the powers that be would come down on them like a ton of bricks, just like they would have done in their own country. So... All Anderson is really saying is 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 that they just felt that the killer's family wouldn't hand him over, uh, irrespective of of how terrible his crimes were. Whereas they presumably supposed that uh, a Gentile family would have um, grasped their son or husband or whatever, which I don't think they would have done. But still, no, uh, yeah, I I don't either. Um, but I think he also was trying to differentiate that from the Jewish population as a whole. And obviously his exchanges um, in the Jewish Chronicle with, um, with Mentor um, kind of flesh that out, you know, I mean, and obviously as a result of that, he took the, um, he took that exact phrasing that was in Blackwoods and he changed that in the book version, as well as taking the part about um, the witness being Jewish as well. So he addressed those points that that um, Greenberg brought up, yeah. And um, he made those adjustments, I think, directly as a result of rethinking his wording, which I, you know, I, I always say that he's very careful when he words things. But I think, like you say, the speed that he, writing his memoirs, he didn't take quite the amount of precision that he may have in his religious writings and having those things uh, brought to light that the, the fact that he um, changed it from being caged you know he was identified when he was caged in an asylum taking that part out I think he was he was addressing those kind of mistakes or, or miswording of things and um, you know it, it uh, you know he he made he made those adjustments, which but he at the same time he did double down on what he said and, and he defended himself on 
on on many occasions about that, you know, and on the subtle um, the subtle mistakes or miswordings. Yeah, he 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 addressed those and corrected them as as he you know deemed necessary. And I don't, I don't think it was it was necessarily he, because he was changing his mind or he was you know manipulating facts to to fit in. I think he just you know I think it's clear that he had a conscience about what he said when it came to the most sensitive issues there. On the other hand, you do quote from uh, that letter from that doctor regarding the Lipsky case um, in 1887 that that kind of shows that there was a precedent for the Jewish community as far as it, it being against the rabbinical standards um, to allow a Gentile to execute a Jew as, as um, maybe some of the motivation as, as opposed to just being confined to the family. So um, what Anderson says, it seems if you take this letter writer seriously and, and he gets into some anti-Semitic language himself, but there does seem to be, um, with the Lipsky case, um, some of this uh, shielding going on by the Jewish community, right? I mean, yeah, that's an obvious case. And that, and it was, you know, that was a pretty big deal. I mean, the Jewish community obviously was a fertile ground for scapegoats for anything. I mean, you look at um, going back to Leather Apron and John Pizer and all that kind of stuff. I mean, yeah, it, it, it's not something that began with the Whitechapel murders, you know, I mean, obviously with, with Lipsky and that, and that, that letter, I think in the trials of Israel Lipsky, um, by that Dr. Apatowski. Um, and it's, it's funny because it's always struck me. The wording of that letter reminds me a lot of the way Anderson writes and speaks. And I've, and I've always had this nagging little question as to whether that could have been actually, um, this Dr. A, Dr. Apatowski could have been, um, written by Anderson. You know, I mean, if I was going to be conspiring uh, to, um, be anti Anderson, I, I think I would go out on a limb and suggest that, you know, say, look at this and look at the similarities using the word vermin. And, and, and there's, there, there seems to be some parallels. And now I do, I don't, I don't believe that, but it's always been one of those kind of things that, uh, um, yeah, if 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 the worm turned in my mind on Anderson, I would I would give that some consideration too. Say, well, yeah, okay, you can see that, uh, you know, and this was before, you know, this would have been before he was um, assistant commissioner. But at the same time, you know, he was he was such a prolific writer to um, uh, newspapers, and and I'm sure that we've only scratched the surface as far as the the the, the writings that have come to light. In these, um, because it seems like you know, every other week you're tripping over something that Anderson said in some obscure paper somewhere. I mean, a lot of these things were obviously borrowed from one another and kind of like that. But I mean, he just didn't. I don't know if the man ever slept. I mean, he just seemed to be just <laughs> writing constantly um, on any number of issues, religious, political, um, and otherwise. Back to what you were saying about um, the police maybe kind of stumbling into this based on uh, being possibly tipped off by a family member or someone. 
how do you view the chronology? Because when you take into account Henry Cox's extensive extract that you republish in your book, Cox was uh, uh, the city CID operating in Met territory, ostensibly keeping, for the uh, sake of argument, Kosminski's house under, um, under watch and following um, him. So do you think that those suspicions, I mean, it doesn't seem to add up that if they had already been tipped off by the family, then they would proceed to do the kind of surveillance that um, Cox describes. It seems like that that would have occurred first, or 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 do you think that they were that they had that information and then they were just waiting to possibly be able to catch him in the act? Well, I think I think that's just as likely uh, because they obviously they their their first um, first priority would be an arrest and a conviction. So I think that they, had they been tipped off ahead of time, which, which, you know, that I mean, that's that kind of makes sense as well, too. I mean, it could have been even after this person was identified. Um, well, of course, that's what Swanson says. You know, it was it was after this identification that he was watched by day and night. And I think Cox's account is is really really fascinating, and it does mm-hmm. tie in a lot with this. I mean, he also mentions the fact that if they weren't posing as factory inspectors, they would have gotten no information whatsoever from these people. And these are just ordinary people too. So that reinforces what Anderson says. Walter Dew says the same thing that these people were, it was, it was, they were notorious for just not communicating information with the police because of this mistrust. I mean, Cox, that's a perfect example. I mean, they had to pose as factory inspectors to get any kind of information out of them. So it, it, uh, yeah, as far as timeline goes, I mean, you, you, it's hard to take the, like bringing cause, cause Aaron Kuzminski into the frame. It's hard to really kind of nail down a timeline that is really acceptable, uh, because of the, the, the large gap. So I'm, I'm kind of, I haven't settled on any kind of particular order of events or timeline because i think there's there's just there's 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 not enough information for me to come to that kind of conclusion i mean it does it does seem like a, quite a gap um between the cessation of the of the murders and aaron kuzminski's incarceration incarceration but that you know that doesn't necessarily mean you could go back to looking at when in the blackwoods articles anderson says when the suspect was caged in an asylum now Talk of private asylums, which not only Henry Cox, but Robert Sager, I believe, also mentioned from time to time this person was put in a private asylum here and there. So in essence, Anderson actually could have been right in his Blackwoods because he could have been. And the same thing with McNaughton goes back and says um, was detained about 1889 and I believe still is. And that would also tie in with someone who was temporarily um, incarcerated, and you could be you could be incarcerated in an asylum without being uh, certified insane. I mean, because obviously you 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 can be released. You know, you can spend time in, um, and it could have been a situation. And this is this is a little bit of a stretch too. I mean, but it could have been a situation where, if it was Aaron Kosminski, I mean, obviously his older brother was was fairly well off um, compared to the rest of his family, apparently. 
it could have been a situation where they tried committing him to a private institution, realized that it was not sustainable, and that may, may have been what prompted them to bring him to the workhouse, which seems to me a little bit out of the ordinary for the Jewish community to seek relief outside of their community, with whether it be the uh, the Board of Guardians or any number of um, institutions within that kind of community. Just the fact that they, they, they would have stepped outside of that and, and sought to have him evaluated in a public institution like the workhouse. And obviously, even after observation in the workhouse, the first attempt, you know, they looked at him and said, no, he's, you know, basically, no, he's, he's good to go. You know, there's nothing wrong with this guy. Chucked him right back to his family, you know. So that, that those gaps in between 1888 and 1891, and even what Anderson said, you could look at a lot of these contradictions that may not actually be contradictions if he had those pieces to plug in the middle. I mean, obviously, the only way we can do it now is to kind of speculate on it so you know it's you know that's definitely dangerous territory but i think on, on the private asylum uh theory for want of a better term there were certainly private asylums that didn't ask you too many questions if you wanted to put a family uh member if you wanted to um, have them incarcerated in one uh they didn't necessarily need to have any form of insanity or even symptom with some of them if as long as you want to pay enough um it was the book said by sarah wise uh inconvenient people um categorizes numerous cases of that so it's certainly uh, not beyond the realms of impossibility yeah it could it could have been a it could have been a a, a point where they just they just got tired of paying for it you know and um I mean, it's 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 very curious. I mean, because obviously the family made multiple attempts to have him taken out of their care, you know. And and fortunately for for the family, regardless of whether he was he, Aaron Kuzminski was a murderer or not, I'm sure it was a relief that he was finally he was finally a a problem that they did not have to deal with anymore, you know. And and you know. You you look at the fact that it was a it was an H division police um, surgeon who committed Kuzminski from or signed his papers to have him committed to Colney Hatch. I mean that doesn't necessarily mean anything you know by itself, but obviously by 1891 there was reason enough for the authorities to say yes this this person is not fit for you know being out in public for whatever reason you go into uh, some detail in in how kosminski um speaking of this timeline kind of fits in with anderson's polish jew by mentioning his his family oh as far as the uh the private asylum thing um costing money some people might question well but wait i thought that they were like poor low low class Polish Jews, how, how would they afford a private asylum? But his, one of his brothers was a pretty successful businessman, I believe. Um, yeah, Isaac, actually. Yeah. And, um, but, but there's a portion of your book where you describe his family and suggest possible connections with things like the Batty Street Lodger story, and, which occurred after the double event. And even that m might have been the first time that the police could have been alerted to 
Kosminski. I mean, who knows? So kind of, uh, this is on page 107, 108 of your book. Kind of go into some of that with, with our listeners about um, how, how uh, Kosminski's family and the, all, all of the circumstances kind of um, show the whole situation in a pretty suspicious light. Well, well, first of all, this all of this story, the baddie, connect the connections with the, the Batty Street laundry incidents, and um, Aaron Kosminski. This all goes back to Rob House. I mean, he's the one that has to have the get the credit for putting all these pieces together. I am I am basically just commenting or reinforcing what Rob has put together. I was not. When Rob first started, uh, you know, looking into Kosminski, I, I at that point, I had already dismissed Kosminski, and I and because of uh, the because of Martin Fidel's book, I was a, I was firmly in the David Cohen camp, um, and as well as Philip Sugden, I had dismissed Anderson. So I believed that Rob was headed for a complete dead end, and that's you know I'm like you know good luck with that. Um, but I had no idea how much of an impact what he what he did with um, researching Aaron Kosminski. So you know, right off, these aren't my thoughts. These are my thoughts on Rob's thoughts. You know, so he deserves all the credit for for this. Um, no question about it. I mean, he's 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 changed my mind, obviously dramatically. Well, not dramatically. I mean, I you know, I was still into the you know, quote unquote, Polish Jew theory. But, um, yeah, it's, he, he's the one that's made, made the majority of these connections and really kind of made it seem a lot less like coincidence that these things, um, came to be that, and, and going to the, the Batty street laundry incident, you know, I mean, obviously Stuart Evans and Paul Ganey brought that up, um, in, um, their book on tumble tea, which, you know, that was the first time I'd ever heard of that incident so it, it it was it was out there but connecting it to Aaron Kosminski in that neighborhood is a lot more plausible I mean these any one of these events could be absolutely completely um, not connected to any of these other things but the 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 laundry incident there's a lot of really curious things about this the fact that when this this bloody shirt was was discovered how it came to notice of the police apparently because even the laundress mrs queer or however you know, pronounce her name um was reluctant to bring this up to the police she shared these apparently if you, you know you have to go buy a lot of newspaper reports on this shared that information with neighbors who said look you really should <laughs> you really should uh, say something about this and then she may have not have been of the jewish community but she was clearly of that immigrant community in that in that area, uh, you look at the proximity to what, where, and when when we when we talk about where Aaron Kosminski probably lived, there really other than um, the address that he was sent back to after the first workhouse visit, and where he you know his address when he was finally sent to Colney Hatch you have to kind of assume that he was living with um, his a member of his family. I mean, that seems like a pretty safe assumption. And Wolf seems to be the most likely person who would 
have been that, you know, since in the care of his brother and, you know, Wolf Abrams has, you know, has been associated with that. Um, and it appears that in 1888 that he was living in Providence Street, which basically, I mean, you could throw a rock from Providence Street to um, where the Batty Street incident happened. And the fact that she said that it was a ladies tailor, um, which the whole Kosminski Abrams clan was part of that. They were tailors, you know, Isaac being successful, Wolf being on the, you know, kind of the 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 lower end of that. And you could easily see when the police were brought in and they interviewed, they said, apparently, I mean, judging from the newspaper articles, because I don't think there's anything in any police files that have that, that, that we've come across to this point. I could be wrong about that. But where the story was, um, the shirt belonged to um, a friend who had cut himself while cutting his corn, whatever that means, whether it's a corn on your foot or corn on, you know, I don't know what that's supposed to mean necessarily. But and had the police interviewed this person and he said, yeah, this is exactly what happened as a friend of mine, you know, and this is what happened. And they could said, all right, you know, all right, it checks out. Let's put this on the back burner because there's someone who is vouching for this. So you could see it as potentially a close call. You know, if you want to be a Kosminski conspiracy kind of person, which, it, you know, I, I could be accused of that because all signs keep kind of pointing back in this direction. You could see how this would fit in as a piece to the puzzle. And the fact that shortly after this incident, I believe two weeks after, Wolf packed up his family and moved out of Providence Street and um, pulled his daughter out of the school that was in Burner Street. And so it's just, you know, as an isolated incident, you can you can you can see where potentially these can be completely unrelated events. But when you keep seeing all these things go back and forth, you're like it. You can't see it being impossible that all of these events are somehow tied together. Um, and that's that's a you know, Rob does a better job going into this, you know, in, in his book. And uh, and I'm blown away that there are people out there still that have not read his book, that have an interest in this uh, this case, because it really it's it's necessary, suspect based or not. It's 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 really necessary reading, regardless of whether you want to believe Aaron Kosminski was the murderer. This, you know, it's it's there's a lot of these relevant kind of things that people just have a tendency to kind of overlook. And um, so, yeah, all the credit to Rob for this, this stuff. Yeah, it does seem kind of odd that when you when you look at suspect theories about other suspects, like a Druitt or Tumbletee, for example, you know, the, I would give Druitt, like, the, you know, some researchers have, have made some possible promising connections between Druitt and some of these events, you know, but, but they're, they're, much um, thinner than than what you get with Kosminski. Um, so it seems odd that, like I was, I was uh, talking to you offline, you know, about the the pendulum swinging and ripperology. It seems odd that um, Kosminski, it, it, although I guess he he is on Richard Jones's poll rated as the top suspect, you don't get that impression if you read the message boards. To have all of this accumulating evidence pointing to Kosminski, I think it, that that is on much more solid footing than 
what the Druidists come up with, or even what the, the Tumblety folks come up with, for then Anderson's Polish Jew theory to just kind of be popularly dismissed and Kosminski being looked at kind of like as a non-starter, um, it doesn't really make sense to me. And then, and then when you have um, this idea that this idea that Anderson was like possibly all by himself and, and his belief that it was the Polish Jew, but your book goes into great detail reiterating how far from being alone in that conviction that, that a Polish Jew was indeed Jack the Ripper, several other police officials, as well as uh, contemporary writers, lined up behind Anderson. More so than, I think, with any other suspect. So this is something that seems to be ignored also by modern thinkers, is the fact that more supporters are siding with Anderson than they seem to have done with any other suspect, right? Well, they're they're really, the arguments, I mean, first of all, if you're going to put forth anybody as a suspect, you have to take into consideration what Anderson said. And if it's a suspect outside of that scope, then you have to, first and foremost, discredit Anderson and wipe out everything that he has said, everything that Swanson said, all of these these supposed coincidences. You have to clear the whole deck and assume that the police weren't on the right track. The police had no idea. Um, who this person, I mean, having Druitt be named in the McNaughton memorandum obviously makes him, he's one of the few names that we know about, but you still, you have to clear away every other little bit of information to make that even plausible, you know? So you're, you're starting in with a giant empty room and a name with nothing around it. Whereas with Kosminski, there's just, I mean, the walls, every wall is, is, is full of, these little things that that go back in there and and yeah anderson it wasn't 1910 that he first started talking about this polish jew theory and it goes you know it goes further back than that you look at henry moore kind of suggests the same thing although he doesn't say polish jew theory and he talks about the police having a pretty good idea who they thought the murderer was and this 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 was um you know this was years before that anderson has been dropping you know had been dropping clues for a long time, and of course, that's the the fuel that people use. Well, he'd he'd formed an, a theory, and it solidified over time. Which it really, if you really look at it, it's not the case. He just he had that same kind of thing. He became more confident in his wording, and I don't. I think it was it was because he was um, further removed from his official duties for one reason, and and also too, he thought there was enough distance. I think in between so that it wouldn't generate the kind of controversy and need for a response that it would have had he come out uh, closer to the to the time of these murders for this this to happen i mean i mean any suspect drew it if you if you just if you if you clear the whole deck like i said of, of all of these other things then you, that's how you can plug in people like that and james hardiman or any of these these kind of things but it's all the all the um, connections that are made are just 
nebulous compared to the hard facts that we have that that kind of keep suggesting back to the other thing. I mean, these people are filling these gaps with um, it's just pure imagination, which you don't need. You don't need much of an imagination to think that Aaron Kosminski was a, was a was a very good suspect. I mean, it's a, it's a shame that uh, the the stupid DNA shawl kind of thing has has been used to prop up Kosminski as a suspect. And that, that was that you want to talk about exploitation. That was, that was pure exploitation as far as I'm um, taking Rob house's research and trying to cash in on what seems like a, a plausible suspect, but it, it really didn't, it didn't do anybody any good. I don't think certainly not. Um, Aaron Kosminski's candidacy, potential candidacy as as Jack the Ripper. That that's a, that's an episode in, Ripperological history that I wish we could just wipe right off the board. You, you had mentioned um, wish dreaming um, in your book, and you alluded to it just a few minutes ago. This, um, as as uh, the people anti Anderson folks, you know, say that that uh, Anderson started out just thinking, uh, you know, having an opinion and having it change into fact. But in in your book, I like how you kind of turn around that wish dreaming idea. Um, and and level it at the the Anderson doubters by seemingly first forming an opinion, then later on treating it as a fact. So again, it's this. I don't want to sound you know. I mean, I I, I um, think Kosminski, just for the record, is is the most plausible of the named suspects. But it is um, a good. Uh, part of your book where again you kind of turn the tables on on Anderson's critics and, and accuse them of being uh, as guilty of what they're accusing him of. I mean, I mean that that's definitely the case, and it, it, it's baffling to me why people are just stuck on this. Because if you look at if you look at the arguments, they're the same arguments that they've been using for twenty five years, and they were arguments that I was in the same camp twenty five years ago. About Anderson, you know, I mean, after, you know, I was hugely influenced by Philip Sugden as well. And so I was in that, that camp, that addle headed nonsense camp. But what I think with, with most of the people who are, um, anti Anderson or whatever, and I still don't understand why, why it's so prevalent still, they haven't, they haven't come up with anything in 25 years to support that addle-headed nonsense thing. It's the same phrases over and over and over. You know, it's like you're watching Fox News. You know, you take the same, not to be get political or anything, but, you know, you have these, and, and that's what's used to diminish Anderson, the exact same simple one-sentence arguments. And, I mean, some people have gone a little further than that. But none of these arguments really, really stand up to scrutiny. They don't. They, they're still – there's more evidence to back up um, Anderson being a credible witness than there is to diminish the thought of him being a credible witness. And I don't see how anybody looking at, looking at all of this can come to a, any other conclusion. It just it – just, it still blows my mind that it, it just uh, – it's it's – I, I don't understand it. I don't understand well, quite, it. I mean, it's quite easy to answer, John. Really, if they accept that Anderson is accurate, then their theories are out of the, the water, aren't they? Yeah. Simple well, as that. 
there's, there's a lot of personal ego involved in this, I'm afraid. Yeah. A lot of the people yeah. who are very violently anti-Kosminski, anti-Anderson, have all got their own suspects. And if Anderson is correct, then their suspects are out of the water. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, but, I, I don't... Yeah. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. There's also false equivalence there because Anderson being correct that that Kosminski, the police, or the majority of the police thought Kosminski was the Ripper, still doesn't necessarily mean he was the Ripper. He just means that that's what they thought at the time. So there is a fear, you know, of our suspects at the water, but I think it's possible to believe someone else is Jack the Ripper, yet also believe Anderson was accurate in what he writes. Jacob Levy yeah. comes to mind. Anderson, yeah. could be, Anderson could be right, but he was wrong. What, what he wrote was was right, but but basically he, it, his final conclusion was wrong. I've never understood why that is such a difficult argument for anybody to make. They've got to go into all this stuff about mm. Anderson being um, the geriatric wishful thinking and all this sort of stuff, and he's a liar and he's this and he's that, but why can't everything he said be true? But he was wrong. Because <laughs> Minsky wasn't Jack the Ripper. Because we aren't allowed shades of grey. Everything's going to be black or white polarised, doesn't it? <laughs> well, it does. Uh, uh, it, this subject is constantly being polarised, whether it's the diary or Kosminski or or whatever. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's a simple solution. Is Unfortunately, the sad thing is that nobody can prove that Anderson was wrong. Well, the, the people um, would say that Anderson stepped in it by suggesting that um, Kosminski, uh, or his Polish Jew, if it was Kosminski, died shortly after being caged in an asylum, and we know that's absolutely not true. So that so that's the the main thread that they have to latch on to. Um, yeah. Where whereas your idea, um, John. Um, is is that uh, it was a purposeful bit of misinformation that was put out there to not create total havoc. If Anderson had said, you know, oh, and then and then he was caged in an asylum, and by the way, this is the name. This is the name of the suspect. This is the name of the asylum. All hell would have broken loose. Um, yeah, and and so and you cite like the police code for, for as an example um, of how they were contracted to not give out certain information, and so they were honoring their, um, as you say, the uh, protecting their traditions of their old department. Um, so that's that that's the answer that you provide in your book to this whole idea that Kos, you know that that uh, Kosminski died shortly after he was in the asylum which is absolutely not true but that's something that they were forced to say because they had had they had said otherwise the asylums would have been under assault possibly the Jewish community would have been under assault his family certainly would have been under assault so well that that's that i think is the biggest leap as far as what I've written about it, because that died shortly afterwards is without question the most difficult part to overcome. And so I think that's, that's where I'm doing that. I, I, that's the biggest leap of speculation that I have because it's the only, it, 
Well, it's the only thing that I can think of to make it make sense. And and if that's forcing it upon Aaron Kosminski being a suspect, then I'd be the first one to, to admit that that is pure speculation on my part, as could be, you know, and, and could it be, could it have been possible? I certainly believe that, but it's, it's, it's certainly, it's certainly a leap to assume that that was the case. And it, the door should be left open for a suspect who died shortly after being put in an asylum. That's why I'm not um, that. And the fact that Anderson never actually said Kosminski and that obviously was Swanson. If, you know, if, if you believe the marginalia, which I think, I think most people accept today that there's no reason to doubt its authenticity. You, you have to leave the door open to the possibility that it wasn't Aaron Kosminski. It would just be a, a, a huge amount of coincidental information. And then it would be one giant coincidence, which is still within, it's still within the realms of possibility. You know, I mean, there, there's, um, yeah, the, 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 the died shortly after is, is certainly the, um, the biggest issue with, um, putting Aaron Kosminski up as a murderer or the murderer. Yeah. But this um, kind of um, whispering campaign that you kind of describe in your book um, by other police officials, I mean, your idea would explain away some of that, too, you know, um, to where he when he was challenged um, outside of maybe Smith, he he wasn't Anderson's um, opinions weren't challenged directly. They they were just uh, kind of. Um, you know, challenged in, in the round kind of a thing, you know, to where if there was this, I don't know, gentleman's agreement or police officer's agreement early on that, um, a, as you kind of suggest that, oh, yeah, okay, I know a lot of you want to talk about this to the press. A lot, you know, people are asking questions. You might want to write memoirs one day. You can say this about the case, but let's just leave out the part where, as far as the the murderer's actual fate in order to protect the identity of his family and you know and so so that um idea that that it was um misinformation that didn't just apply to anderson but applied to other writers on the case would explain away you know a lot of what we see is like contradictory information. Yeah. And I, and I think, um, you could understand why it would create some animosity amongst his fellow officers when he took it upon himself to say what he had to say and everyone else kept their mouth shut about it. So, uh, but of course, Anderson would have been in again, the unique position to know best what he could say and what he couldn't say. Um, I mean, t on a technical level. So you can see this McNaughton leaving Anderson out of his autobiography completely and Smith spending an entire chapter on Anderson and the criminal invest, the great criminal investigator or whatever he, you know, whatever he used for, to phrase it. Um, because neither one of them, although McNaughton puts obviously suggests drew it by association as his, you know, most likely suspect. And Henry Smith kind of mocks Anderson for what he said about the Jewish community. There are no direct, nobody comes out and says, you know, Anderson was wrong. I mean, the closest thing we have is in that private, uh, private letter 
from little child to GR Sims that says Anderson only thought he knew. But again, you have to put that in context too. Of and uh, yeah, nobody, nobody comes out and says he was wrong. Not a single person challenges him on it. And there's there's got to be there's got to be reasons behind that, you know, because what would they have to lose other than um, having the truth come out? By 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 saying no, he he didn't know what he was talking about, and, and we don't want him speaking for us. Nobody did that. Yeah, and and it's ironic that little child's letter, you know, um, naming Tumblety gets a bunch of facts wrong. Says uh, you know he was never heard from again. Um, you know, I mean, it's just like in itself, either being purposefully misleading uh, uh, to, for Sims. Um, you know, or little child just didn't know what he was talking about. You know, the same, some, essentially the same argument, a, a better argument even could be made for little child not knowing what he was talking about than Anderson. Yeah, yeah. But, but there are similar lines of, uh, I'll, I'll go, I'll say, I'll, I'll speak the truth up to a certain point and then it, it, I'll fall off the cliff. With, well, it's, as it's, far as the journalists are concerned, and it, it's a, it was a, maybe a conscious decision on their part. Well, it's especially if you consider, you know, just hypothetically, that the murderer was known to have been a member of the immigrant Jewish community. If how Anderson plays it out, it would actually be a better outcome for everyone that this person was not ever brought to trial, that he was, he was, it was assured that he would never be able to commit murder again. And there would be no bad light shown on the immigrant community. So it makes a lot of sense on a lot of different levels that this actually would have been better off for everyone. The police just biting their tongue, but knowing at the same time, this would have been much better if the murderer did come from this community, that there was a way to make sure that these murders weren't going to continue and that this person was no longer a danger to society. And also this community was protected from what would have been a, a, a worse, worse than what Charles Warren could have had in mind when he, you know, ordered the graffiti to be, to be erased, you know? So, I mean, in the end, that, it was the ideal ending as far as from a police perspective, from a social perspective, you know, for all, all things considered, this would have been an ideal ending as opposed right. to the circus of a trial. And because then of course the, the community would have been on trial and the furor that it would have caused. Yes. The police could have, could have, could have uh, taken a bow and said, yeah, look, we did it. But in the, at the end of the day, would they not have been more satisfied that they did a good, noble job, and it eliminated the peril for not only the the women of the streets, but also this immigrant community. I mean, it just it it makes too much sense to ignore. The public in general would have been outraged that the killer was not brought to trial. You know, um, the I think that as much as the police. It, um, might have been pleased by the outcome if that if if that outcome had been made public at the time um then then um it wouldn't just be the jewish community but i think the entire population um, yeah, it, 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 would, have yeah, been, it, it would have demanded a trial 
Well, it would have it 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 worked out if that was the case. Um, <laughs> that the murderer came from this community, it worked out better for all par- best for all parties concerned, except for the ego of the police, which at the same time they could look at one another and go. Yeah, yeah, this it's over and done with. Um, let's wash our hands of this and no more. Like, um, I think it was Henry Moore said that uh, there's no nothing more needs to be said about it. You know, um, because yeah, a, a trial would have been if it had been someone outside of that community. No, the police certainly would have preferred that, and I'm sure the public would have preferred that. But if if this was the case, then no, it was it was it was best that this person didn't go to trial, even a trial and conviction would have been achieved the same result other than the death of the suspect. Um, but it would have created more of a problem than the, the result that Anderson says. Happened. Yeah. yeah. And, and uh, creating a, like this, these little lies, um, uh, particularly about um, the suspect's uh, death, um, the only other option would be to swear everybody to secrecy, to never speak of it again. I mean, which obviously wasn't going to happen. So really they were left with no choice, you know, because some well, that's, but it would appear, it would appear that much more suspicious if no one said anything mm-hmm. as opposed to, um, making it look like everyone had a different opinion because that it would be a great way to, um, dispel any kind of conspiracies. You just, I mean, because it's so easy to accept. Oh, nobody knew anything, and and so that's not an unreasonable conclusion to come to when you see all these apparent contradictions that, that from McNaughton and um, Smith and Anderson and all that. So it's not an unreasonable conclusion to come to that nobody knew who it was, you know, and they're all just grasping at straws, but. It would it would show that it would kind of give this kind of look of incompetency, which I don't think they were afraid of necessarily. But it also kind of it it, it makes pursuing this Polish Jew thing that much more likely for someone to try to do if they can just say, well, this guy believed this. Day. So, you know what? We'll just assume that we're gonna, never going to know, you know. So, you know, but, I mean, that's speculation as well. But it would make sense. You know, it makes sense to me. Again, John Malcolm's book is entitled The Whitechapel Murders of 1888, Another Dead End. And I encourage everyone to seek out a copy. It's available at the moment on only on Kindle on um, Amazon. And perhaps in the future, there, there will be another print edition. I'm not sure about that. But anyway, um, it's on Kindle, on Amazon, so you can get it there now. And I want to thank you for coming on the show again, John. I hope you enjoyed it. I, I most certainly did. And uh, thanks for for having me here. And, and thank you to you and John and Steve and Paul for listening to me ramble. Um, any opportunity I have, John's had to put up with it twice in two weeks now. Um, <laughs> um, but I really definitely, I definitely appreciate the opportunity. And um, yeah, and uh, anytime. It's, it's great. Thank you, Jonathan. All right. Well, thank you again, John. And also thanks to Paul Begg, John Reese, and Steve Blomer. Always and a pleasure. Always a pleasure. All right. Thanks a lot, guys.